Okay then, uh, back to Philippians. Uh, chapter 3. Philippians, chapter 3. Right, now now we've got uh, as, as far as verse 12. Um, now just, just to remind you, in the last study we were doing, um, we saw that in verses 8 to 11 that Paul was talking about having the righteousness of Jesus himself. Not just in the sense that obviously when we get born again, the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us. He shares it with us so that before God the Father we're right. But Paul wasn't talking about that. He was talking about how as we grow in the Lord, that the righteousness of Jesus can actually be shared with us in the way that we live. And we've seen that his theme has been very much how Jesus can live through us um, and how that happens through the death of our sinful natures. Um, it's a systematic thing, it's a progressive thing, it goes on and on and on. But Paul's been talking about sharing the death of Jesus in order to have the righteousness of Jesus. And of course Jesus died to sin. And it's as we die to our sinful natures, as we die to ourselves, that more and more Jesus is able to actually live through us. And it's a process, it's something that goes on and on. And uh, we're going to see now Paul's verdict on, on his own growth. Because um, sometimes you get the teaching that, um, you know, sort of like there's a revelation of your death with Jesus, which there certainly is. I mean, I can remember the night. I remember the night when the Lord showed me that I died with Jesus on the cross. I mean, it was, for me, it was as profound as when I was born again and when I was baptised with the Spirit. But it's easy to end up in the teaching, and some people talk like it, as if something like that happens and bang, you know, it's a once for all thing and, you know, bye bye in nature and all, all that is just the problem of the past and tonight we're going to see that that certainly isn't true at all now what we'll do is we'll read um, from verse 12 to 16 because they're the verses we're going to be doing tonight and uh, we'll read through them and then we'll go through them in detail uh, and Paul says not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brethren, I don't consider I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature be thus minded. And if, any, and if in anything you are otherwise minded, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, here is Paul's verdict on his own discipleship. Um, i.e., if you were able to uh, sort of go back 2,000 years in a time machine and sidle up to Paul and say... Tell me, Paul, I've been reading an awful lot about you and I've been reading an awful lot of what you wrote, but tell me, have you arrived? I mean, have you kind of got everything that there is to have in the Christian life? Are you there? Are you home dry? Or is there further to go? And this would be Paul's answer. He said, what? Have I already attained? Absolutely not. Am I already perfect? No way. All right. And that what we've got here is that Paul is talking about his own growth as a Christian. 
And the key word, really, is in verse 15. He says, let those of us who are mature be thus minded. And that is the key word, mature, maturity. The Christian life is a process of maturing. It's a process of growth. And the point about growth is that it goes on and on and on. There's never a time when, bang, that's it, we've arrived. It's a process of growing, of maturing. Think of it like this. If you go to Marks and Spencers, all right, if you have a look on their cheese counter, you will find that Marks and Spencers sell no less than five different grades of cheddar cheese, all right? You can get mild, you can get medium, you can get mature, you can get extra mature, and you can get vintage matured. Now, I'll leave it to each one of you to put yourselves in where you are in the Lord, you know. I mean, are you mild, medium, mature? Have we got any vintage matured here? Can you see? The idea is that a bit of cheese, I mean, it might look that not much is happening, but it's actually changing all the time. It's growing. There are changes happening inside of it, and it affects the taste. Now, in exactly the same way, in following God, in Jesus working in our lives, all the time he wants to be bringing about this change that we're growing, that we're maturing. And Paul says quite clearly, I have not arrived yet. And he raises the question here, well, he says, I, um, I have not obtained this, neither am I already perfect. Now, Paul's not there talking about sinless perfection. That's not what the word means in the Greek. The Greek word there is teleos, and it simply means having reached an end. Having reached an end. Um, if something is finished, it's teleos, okay? Uh, so Paul isn't, you know, here saying, am I sinless? He's saying, you know, sort of, have I reached the end? He says, no, I haven't. I'm not perfect. I'm not fully matured yet. I don't think Paul would have even put himself in vintage maturity, is he? don't think he would have done. He was aware that there was more to come, more to come. In verse 15, see what he says those? He says, um, sorry, not, not verse 15. Um, yes, it is in verse 15. Uh, you get the word, um, I've got lost. Forget that. No, no, forget that, forget that. Um, I heard a story once of um, a guy, he was um, a painter, and uh, he was invited to exhibit his pictures, you know, and there was this guy, he was the promoter, all right. And there was this art show, and this up-and-coming aspiring artist was having his pictures um, shown in public. And, uh, and the guy who was organising it, you know, the day that it started, you know, he's getting all the paintings out and setting up the hall and that. And there was one painting of a waterfall. But the trouble was, it didn't have a title. All the others had a title. You know, if you're an artist, you title your picture and it goes up on display. And this picture, no title. So the organiser thought, I'd better get in touch with him because I have to come up with a title for this, you know, and put a little note on it, what it's called and that. So he phoned the artist. He said, look, this waterfall thingy here, there's no title. Um, what, you know, name it, name it, please. And the artist said, no, I can't think of anything. You name it. You name it, you see. So the promoter mused about it, all right, you know, until he thought, oh, yeah, I've got it, a waterfall. I know what it is now, you see. Now, when the artist went along to the hall, all right, because he saw the pictures, and there was the waterfall, and underneath it was entitled More to Come. Now, that's the thing about the Christian life, and that's what Paul is saying here. Because there is always more to come, therefore we have never, ever arrived. 
there's always more to grow into. All right. Now, in verse 12, he says it. In verse 13, he says, I do not consider that I've made it my own. So, twice, once in verse 12, uh, sorry, once in verse uh, 12, and once in verse 13, he says, I haven't made it yet. All right? He says it twice. Okay? And yet, in verse 12, he says, but what I do do, I press on. I press on. He says, I haven't made it, but I'm pressing on. And then down in verse 14, he starts it again. I press on. So what Paul does in the space of these verses is that twice he says, I haven't arrived yet. Now that puts to death once and for all any idea of a Christian having made it. All right? Twice he says, I haven't arrived. There's more to come. And twice he says, I press on. Now that sums up how Paul felt about himself in following the Lord. He knew he hadn't arrived. All right, he says that twice. But was he his feet up, casual kind of, well, of course I haven't arrived, but then it doesn't matter because no one else has. You know, kind of a lackadaisical, I've come far enough. No, twice he says I haven't made it yet, and twice he says I am pressing on. All right. Now, this, this thing here where Paul says I press on, um, the Greek word here is dioko. All right, so when he says I press on, it's dioko. Now, this is a really extraordinary word for Paul to use. He's talking here about the fact that there's more to come, he hasn't arrived, but he wants to move on the whole time, okay? And in describing the way in which he does that, he uses the Greek word dioko. Now, why is it such a strange word to use? If you go back to chapter 3 and verse 6, exactly the same word was used there. Let's just read verse 6, the first part of it. As to zeal a persecutor of the church. Now that word persecutor is dioko. This word that he uses, I press on, is the Greek verb to persecute. To persecute. Now why, why is he using that word? Well it means to drive away. That's what this verb dioko means. The idea is that if, there's a, if someone's being run out of town, you know, like in the old westerns or something like that, you know, sort of like the local doctor, he, you know, instead of giving someone aspirin, he gives them poison or something, and he's run out of town, you know, by all the townspeople. That's what this word means, to drive away, to run out of town. Now, what Paul is doing is that he's using that word to conjure up the enthusiasm and determination that you've got in people who are so het up that they're actually driving someone out of town. Can you see? If you end up hating someone so much that you're hounding them to the extent that you're following them around, making their lives a misery, trying to drive them out. If you hate someone that much, okay, then Paul is saying the determination that people have for venting their hatred, you know, when they really can't stand someone and they're thinking about them all the time and every opportunity they get, they're trying to, you know, be horrible to them and persecute them. What Paul's saying is that I press on with the same determination that people who hate each other have in getting at the people they hate. Is it? 
Because after all, if there's someone that you really do want to get at, you know, and you're following them around, I mean, you know, sort of say, say back in, in the days of the Wild West, I mean, say you're, you're the person who's whipping up the townsfolk to get rid of someone, to drive them out of town. Now, to be that committed to something, there's a lot of energy going into that, isn't there? You know, that, there's a lot of determination there. Now, what Paul is saying, that is the determination, that is the energy, that is the effort that I am putting into my Christian life. All right? He said, indeed, once I was a persecutor of the church. You know, I mean, Paul, before he was a Christian, all right, I mean, his job, his self-appointed job, was going around hounding Christians. He hated them so much. His life was totally committed to destroying the Christian church. Now, what Paul says is that the strength of that, he says, now what I've done is rather than being absolutely determined to destroy the Lord, now I'm absolutely determined to follow after him. Can you see, Paul was 100% there. He was putting everything he had into pressing on after the Lord. Okay. Now, also, this word dioko, that means to persecute or to drive away, uh, it's used in the same way uh, in various other places in the Bible. Let's, let's actually have a look at them. First of all, in Romans, if you go to Romans 14, <coughs> Paul uses it a lot, and the writer to the Hebrews uses it once. And remember that what we're seeing is, it's the determination that someone would have if they hated someone so much they're trying to systematically destroy them, all right? It's the intensity of the effort put into it. Now, in Romans 14 and verse 9, <coughs> sorry, Romans 14 and verse 19, Paul says, Let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now, that word translated pursue, it's dioko. Now, I think in some ways uh, it's fair to say that when you read this, let us then pursue what makes for peace. I think it's a little bit wimpy, isn't it? It's a little bit wet. There's no strength in that. You know, let's, let's pursue. Paul's saying here, look, let's go for it 100% with the intensity of someone who was persecuting somebody. Only here, the drive and the energy isn't being put into persecuting somebody because you hate them. Paul says here, pursue, really strive after what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Paul's here talking about working in regards to relationships. My goodness, you've got to work at it. You've got to work at it. In fellowship, in your family, husband, wife, people at work, you've got to work at it. Because we can either be part of the solution or part of the problem. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And yet many, many Christians, they're actually part of the problem. You know, when they get into all manner of fisticuffs. And of course, Christians can be very, very quick to say, oh, well, of course I'm being persecuted. Well, possibly, but it might be you're just being such a pain in the neck that everyone you work with, everyone you live with, you're driving them up the wall because you're so selfish or something like that. And here Paul is saying, look, don't be part of the problem, be part of the answer so that we're really working at making sure that our contribution into people's lives is that which is going to bring peace. Um, you know, okay, maybe they're a bit awkward, but, you know, why should we get our noses out of joint? We've got the righteousness of Jesus. And he says, for mutual upbuilding. 
So easy, isn't it, to want to do people down, to destroy. Paul says, no, really zealously work at building people up. Let your contribution to their life be a positive one, one that is really helping them. Not, not necessarily just flattering people to death, not saying you're right when you're wrong, <laughs> all right, but nevertheless to be given to each other so that our contribution to each other's lives is always something so you can say, my dealings with this person, the effect they've had on me is constructive. I'm better off in the Lord because I know that person. Can you see? That is what Paul is saying there. Uh, go to 1 Corinthians 14. This one, you know. 1 Corinthians 14, probably one of the verses most Christians know best in the entire Bible. Well, now you're seeing what it really means. Make love your aim. Everyone knows that 1 Corinthians 14 says that. Make love your aim. But the word here is dioko. Paul is saying work as hard at being a loving person as you would if you so hated someone you wanted to drive them out of town. Can you see? He says go for it 100%. Go to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. And Paul is using this word because it's such a strong word. I mean, the whole point about it is that when you've got someone who's so worked up that they're actually trying to drive someone out of town, all the energy and commitment that that person has got to that wrong end, Paul's saying that is the same energy and commitment that we must have in regards to following the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 15, and he just says, see that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. And that word seek, dioko, go for it, 100%. Over to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, Two books on. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And in verse 11, he says, But as for you, man of God, shun all this. He's been talking about worldliness and love of money and stuff like this. And he says to Timothy, Look, shun all of that. He says, Aim at righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And when he says, Aim at, that is the word, Dioko, to persecute. 2 Timothy, next book on, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 22. He says, so shun youthful passions, extremely good advice there, shun youthful passions, and aim, there's Dioko, aim at righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Really go for it. Let's go over into Hebrews. The writer to the Hebrews uses it just once. Chapter 12, and in verse 14. And he says, Strive for peace with all men and for holiness. Strive for peace with all men, and for holiness. There's the word again, dioko. Really go for it, 100%. Let's just see a last one from Paul. Go back into Romans. <coughs> back into Romans, in verse 12, uh, chapter 12.
This is a verse that we've referred to several times in the past. Now we can bring out the, the full meaning, Romans 12 verse 13, when he says, contribute to the needs of the saints, and then he says, practice hospitality. Now we've seen this before, haven't we? Hospitality, the Greek word is a love of strangers. You know, have your life, have your home open for people to come into. But here, practice hospitality. It's not practice, it's dioko. That word is dioko. What Paul is saying is hospitality is a good thing. Go for it 100%. Work at it. Work at it. It's not just going to happen. Hospitality isn't going to begin by sitting at home waiting for someone to knock on the door. That's not how it starts. You've got to go for it. You've got to get out there and do it. And that is what Paul is talking about. In regards to all those things, and when he says, I press on, I move forward, the word he's using is he's saying, put the kind of effort into it that someone who hated somebody else and persecute them would put into that persecution. All right? So, have a look at a rabid persecutor. You know, someone who hates someone so much that, that they're so committed to hurting them, all right? And that is the commitment that Paul says we need to have in regards to following the Lord. Now, back into Philippians and see what Paul says next. I, of course, have gone and lost my place now, yeah. <coughs> Let's move on into verse 13. He said, I do not consider I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So Paul is now further describing the nature of this pressing on. And he says, for me, what I'm doing, I'm straining for what lies ahead. Now, this phrase here, straining forward, all right, it's epektino, and it's the Greek verb that means to stretch out. So if you were doing aerobics, um, or if you had someone on the rack, you know, the old, you know, sort of torture, you know, down at the, you know, the dungeons and stuff like that, and they put someone on the rack and they stretch them, all right, that person has been epectanoed. That's what it means. And Paul's saying, look, I'm reaching forward at full stretch. Now, if there's one thing that comes across to me in regards to this, is that what Paul is saying is he says, growing in the Lord, okay, requires one thing. And it's often the thing that we're so bad at putting into it. And the thing that growing in the Lord needs is effort. Effort. I'll spell that. F-O-R-T. Effort. <laughs> that is what Paul is talking about. He says, straining on. I'm reaching out for everything that I can get of the Lord and in following him. Now, he says more than that, because if you're to do that, okay, he says, forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting what lies behind. So, Paul here, he's not just talking about attitude to the future, you know, now he says, I'm straining on to what God's got for me in the future. But you have to relate to the past. You have to sort the past out as well in regards to it. And Paul had concluded the best thing in regards to the past, if he was to press on now into the future, was to quite simply forget what lies behind. Now, Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's Luke 9, verse 62. 
I'll read it again. No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now then, what is someone ploughing? What's he doing? He's making a furrow. All right? He's doing a specific thing. And the furrow is so that seeds can be planted in it in a nice orderly way. Now, of course, in those days, what they did is they had the oxen on the front and the plough came along behind, you see, and the bloke had to steer it. Uh, you know, sort of today it's a tractor, but the bloke's still got to steer it. Now, picture someone who's ploughing, i.e. they've got a job to do. All right, now, as Christians, we're saying we're following the Lord. A ploughman is furrowing, all right? Now then, what happens to a ploughman who's looking back over his shoulder all the time? What kind of furrow is he going to end up with? I mean, can you imagine what's going to happen when the people come out to pick the crops, when that bloke is furrowed looking behind him all the time? It's going to be all over the place, like Spaghetti Junction, isn't it? You cannot plough looking back. You've got to look forward. And that is what Jesus was saying, and that is what Paul is saying as well. Now... I think that there are three things, three things that are the main things that we end up looking back on that we mustn't. These are certainly things that have, you know, kind of sometimes dragged me down, you know, but I think, you know, all Christians between them are going to relate, you know, to sort of like these things. And the first one is this, we mustn't keep looking back to past sin and failure which has been dealt with. We mustn't keep looking back. Now, I'm talking about past sin and failure that's been confessed and put right. I'm not talking about forgetting the past sin and failure that hasn't been put right. In that department, what you're desperately trying to forget, God's remembering. All right. What I'm talking about is that in our past, the failure, mistakes, sins that we've put right, we've confessed, we've done all that, we've got to forget about it or we've got to put it behind us not keep looking back to it because if we do we're going to live our lives with a weight of condemnation around our necks and that is satan's work you can't press on you can't strain forward if you're chained to the past and still digging up all the sins and everything through the years that god has forgiven somebody said once don't keep digging up dead corpses they stink and it's true, and it's true. And it's possible for a Christian to live in a spiritual miasma akin to a mortuary, only a mortuary where there's no refrigeration. Can you see? Mulling over all, all this death, all this sin in their past. And God's saying, look, you've confessed it, you've put it right, that's all behind you. You've got clear air to breathe, and yet there we are sitting in this mortuary of our past failure. To that, the Word of God says, look, get out of that. Put it behind you. Forget about it. Now then, maybe there are things in the past that are haunting you precisely because you haven't put them right. And the reason you can't forget about them, though you're trying very hard to, <laughs> all right, is that you haven't put them right yet. Well, the answer to that is quite simply that, this. Put it right and then forget about it. That's the thing. Put it right. See whoever you've got to see. Do whatever you've got to do. Send that money to whoever you've got to send the money to. I don't know, perhaps you've been conning you know, British Rail or London Transport for years. Uh, a friend of mine, actually, he, you know, he realised years after being you know, sort of like saved, um, you know, that he suddenly, it came to mind all the years as a non-Christian that he hadn't been paying his fares. 
let's face it, it's dead easy, isn't it? You know, to not pay your fares. I mean, I can remember once when I worked, um, I worked near the Limehouse Cut, which was really wonderful. And, um, and one morning the bus was so crowded that I literally couldn't pay my fare. I mean, you know, the journey wasn't long enough and the bus was so packed I couldn't get to the conductor. Now, I remember feeling guilty about that, which was a bit stupid. You know, I tried very hard to pay the fare. But this guy, <coughs> all right, he looked back on all the years that he'd been conning London Transport. And the Lord convicted him one night, you know, and he knew that, you know, he had to send that, you know, to London Transport and write them and say, look, I'm a Christian, I've been conning you, here's the money I owe you, see. So he thought very hard about it and prayed very hard about it, you see. Um, you know, and so the next morning, or sort of like a few days later, London Transport got a letter, you know, my name is blah, I'm a Christian, blah, blah, blah. You know, here's, here's the sum that the Lord has shown me, you see. And, uh, you know, so he sent it off and he went to bed and he couldn't sleep. He couldn't sleep, you know. Two days later, London Transport got another letter. It's me again, here's the rest. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know whatever it is that's got to be done, do it. Get it right with God and then forget about it. But when Jesus forgives sin, he does it properly. He's dealt with the past in that respect. So it's important for us that we forget what lies behind um, in that department. Now then, a second thing that we've got to leave behind, that we've got to forget and leave in the past, this might surprise you. We've got to leave alone past glories which has now faded past glories which have now faded. What do I mean? We've got to put behind us and forget about what God was doing then as opposed to what he's doing now. Can you see? It's very easy to live in what God was doing then. Now is the only time that we've got. Not the past, only the present. What God is doing now should have our attention. Not forever lamenting after what God was doing then. Can you see what I mean? I mean, it's good to be encouraged by the past. Yeah, it's good to share with people what God has done in the past. I'm not talking about that, okay? What I'm talking about um, is, for instance, it's very easy as a Christian to end up living in the past. I've done it to a certain extent. Uh, you know, I tend to look back on, you know, particular ways that God used me many, many moons ago, and he doesn't now. You know, and you can end up dwelling on it. Now, that's living in the past. Now, it boils down to quite simply this. If God used to be present with you in a more dramatic way years ago than he is now, so what? You see, so what? Um, if he wants to get dramatic with you again, he will. He will. What does it matter? What does it matter? It's very easy. We all look back on, you know, those sort of five or six examples in the deep distant past when God used us to work a miracle. All right. And we look back on it as if that's happening every day. <laughs> I mean, these were highly isolated incidences. They were for me. <coughs> but if you live in the past, you can end up thinking, oh, oh, you know, it's all gone wrong or something like that. It hasn't. God was dealing with you differently in the past than he is now. And in that respect, yeah, let's encourage each other, surely. Uh, in the Psalms, you often get, you know, David, maybe he's writing a psalm or something. He's all depressed. And then he looks back on what God has done for him in the past. And he's cheered up. And he gets his eyes back on the Lord again. That's fine. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the looking back, all right, that one doesn't lead you to look to the Lord now. It just leaves you living in the past and getting all depressed 
because you think God's not doing as much for you now as he used to once. Can you see? I mean, we should be aware. I mean, parents have got to be aware. What is the greatest influence in your children for good as you bring them up? Is it what you give them or is it what you don't give them? <laughs> it's what you don't give them, isn't it? You know, it's not their prezzies at Christmas and on the birthday that is making them, you know, grow up into the mature, responsible citizens in the future. No, it's what they want, but you don't let them have. That's what's doing the job. Can you see? So, maybe as we look back, you know, I mean, when we were baby Christians, God was pouring out grace and miracles all over the place. And then maybe you go through years of all saying, right, now I want you to grow up. Now I want you to love me for me, not because of what I'm doing not because of what I give you, can you see? And yet it's very easy in that situation to end up living in the past. I mean, we've got to let it go. And we've got to look to the Lord for what he wants now and what he's leading us into. Never mind what the past has been, let it go. The day of salvation is now, is now. The Bible is always present tense. When the Lord revealed himself to Moses and said, look, I'm going to use you to, you know, lead my people out of Egypt. Um, you know, sort of Moses says, well, I'm, I'm okay, fine. But I mean, who shall I say sent me? You know, what do you call yourself? I mean, what he was saying, you know, can I at least have your name? All right. And God said, tell them that I am sent you. Now, God's name or one of his names is I am, not I was. Not I used to be. Now, many Christians, they follow a God whose name is I was. Can you see? I used to be. They're living in the past. God is I am. The present is all that we've got. So we've got to forget about all the past glories to the extent that they're getting in the way and we just end up, you know, like the good old days, as it were. We've got to forget all that. The day of salvation is now. And then the third thing in regards to the past uh, is that we've, we've got to stop hankering after Egypt when it gets tough in the promised land, in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Do you see what I mean by that? God brought his people out of Egypt and life in Egypt was, was hell for them. It was terrible. They were slaves. And they were slaves with bad masters as well. And so God set them free. Oh, yippee, hallelujah, Israel said. Then, through the wilderness, on their way to the promised land. And what did they do? Every time it got tough, oh, it wasn't like this in Egypt. Every time they got thirsty, oh, we weren't thirsty in Egypt. No, you weren't thirsty in Egypt, but you got 40 lashes after you had your drink. You see what I mean? So easy to forget. And Israel, they hankered after, Israel, after Egypt. Every time it got tough, as they were going through the wilderness... Now, the point is, that can get to all of us in different ways, and we've got to put a stop to it. I mean, for instance, it may well have been easier at times when you weren't following the Lord. It may well have been. And sometimes it's so much harder now that we are following the Lord. And it is possible to look back and think, before I was following the Lord, I didn't have this hassle. Before I was following the Lord, I didn't feel like this very much. You know, before I was following the Lord, there were times when life actually seemed brighter. Can you see? Yeah, in some respects, the wilderness brought a toughness that Egypt didn't have. But Egypt were on the way to, you know, to Canaan. And yet all the time, looking back at the past, hankering after 
Egypt. I mean, for instance, what we've got to realise is that God's discipline, even, is better than that old life of sin. No matter how hard it is now following the Lord, it is better. Going thirsty in the wilderness is better than being bossed around by slaves who would flog you half to death just because they felt like it. Can you see what I mean? But it's so easy to forget the bad things of the past, isn't it? It's so easy to do that. For instance, I mean the change of, you know, of life that we're called to affects different people in different ways. For instance, working might well be harder than being lazy. Yeah, it might well be. Forgiving someone might well be harder than getting your own back. Uh, telling the truth may well be harder in situations than telling a lie. A period of being celibate, and after all, the best contraception of all is the oral contraceptive. You say no. A period of being celibate may well be harder than being immoral. But my goodness, isn't it worth it? So what that it's hard following the Lord? I mean, Jesus' way is better. No matter, you know, how tough it is now. I mean, that life that we had, what was it? What was it? It was death, it was destruction, it was folly. It was folly. And yet sometimes we end up hankering after it. I mean, what a, what a testimony to the fact that we have evil, unbelieving hearts. Because no greater misery has ever been caused by anyone than their own sin. I know that nothing has ever made me more miserable than I have. You see what I mean? My own sinfulness, my own willfulness. And yet it's possible to be in the wilderness, on the way to the promised land, looking back and hankering after Egypt. Now that we've got to put a stop to. We've got to <coughs> keep our eyes on the Lord now. Following Jesus uh, may be harder in the short term, alright? But my goodness, it's a lot easier, it's a lot easier than that road to hell that we were all treading before we got saved. Can you see? Oh yeah, going back to the world, easier in the short term, but in the long term, absolute folly, wretched in every possible way, alright? No, like Paul, we've got to press on. And what was he pressing on to? He said, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He said, I've forgotten what lies behind. I'm pressing on with all my might, all right, into the future. But this goal, when will it end? What is the goal that Paul has got? Where is the goalpost that when Paul runs into it, he will then say, I've attained, I've finished, all right? Well, <coughs> it's the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, what's an upward call, all right? Well, I'll tell you. Oi, you down there, up here. Now, that is the upward call of God. It's either when you die or it's when the rapture comes. So, can you see? This thing that Paul's talking about is a lifelong thing. It will only be complete when we die or when the rapture happens because then we're going to be free from sin. We'll no longer have a sin nature. So what Paul is saying, I'm forgetting the past 
Now I'm pressing on into the future and I'm going to keep doing this until I either drop dead or the law comes for me. Alright? There is no end to it. That's the point. No half time. Just on and on and on. That is what Paul is saying here. And in verse 15, he says, let those of us who are mature be thus minded. And he says that as you mature in the Lord, as you grow up in Jesus, he says that more and more and more, that's how you'll think. I mean, the more you grow, the less you will hanker after the past. The more you grow, uh, you know, that, th those chains of condemnation for people who keep dragging up their past sins. The more you mature, the chains will get lighter and lighter until eventually they're gone. So Paul is saying, look, he says, I'm mature because he'd been following the Lord for years. <coughs> and he says, some of you people that I'm writing to, you are mature as well. And he says, you are able to think like me. Okay. But what he does say, he says, and if anything you are otherwise minded. Because Paul knew that there were going to be baby Christians here in the church, you see. Now, it's very possible that for some baby, I mean, I can remember when I was a young Christian, uh, you know, like when you'd hear, you know, sort of like sermons and teaching about holiness and, and commitment and stuff like that. I mean, I love the Lord, you know, and I really wanted him to have his way. But I mean, holiness, I mean, that word used to frighten the life out of me. I mean, I didn't have the time of day for holiness. I mean, for a large extent, I can look back, I was actually getting false teaching. Can you see what I mean? But the point is that, that, that a lot of what was in here frightened the life out of me when I was a young Christian. And I think probably even more than that, 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 that probably once I've been a Christian for probably about two years, my understanding of the Bible very quickly began to outstrip my own spiritual, you know, where I was then. And uh, it really did use to tie me up in knots because I was getting an understanding of what God required of really mature people, but I wasn't mature in the Lord, and it really did frighten the life out of me, you know, I mean, I'd hear certain people, you know, speak and teach and stuff like that, and I thought, you've got to be joking, you know, I mean, with the best will in the world, there is no way I could be like that, whereas as the years have passed, things that frightened me then delight me now, can you see? Now, what Paul is doing is that he's more or less saying, look, he says, some of you are still baby Christians, all right? And, uh, and he's saying, look, you know, you've heard me talk about straining ahead and forgetting what lies behind and, you know, and all this stuff and it's 100% and blah, blah, blah. And I mean, Paul could appreciate, you know, it might have been frightening the pants off of some of the new Christians there. So what Paul says is he says, look, he says, look, as for those of you who are otherwise minded, God will reveal that also to you. Is he? What he's saying is, look, he says, you can't understand it now because you're baby Christians. He says, but in time you'll get there. Because if you're faithful, God will make sure you get there. And really what he's saying is, look, some of the things that I'm writing, okay, uh, for some of you, uh, they're going to seem a bit frightening, a bit heavy. But that's only because you don't understand it yet. But he said, don't worry, don't worry about that. Because as you get more mature, as you get to know Jesus better. Because the point is that as you grow in him through the years, yeah, you become more aware of how much he demands of you. 
And believe me, I now know it's even more frightening than I thought it was years ago. But the point is, you also become more aware of his love. That's the point. You become more aware of his love. That it's not, you know, this hard taskmaster, you know. I mean, I certainly used to think like that for a very, very long time. You know, is there nothing I can do to please God, you know? Can you see? And that his grace got left out of it, and that is absolutely awful. So what Paul is saying, look, those of you who are mature, you're thinking like me. He says, that's brilliant. He says, but some of you, you're not mature yet, okay? Some of this may be a bit heavy for you. No problem, God will get you there. And what he says to them next is he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Is he? Let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, a tremendously important principle here. But what he's saying <coughs> is, look, for some of you Christians who aren't as grown up in the Lord as I am, okay, he's saying some of what I'm saying, it's just too much for you. It blows your mind, okay? Well, he says, that which is blowing your mind, he says, don't worry about it now because God will get you there in time. Now then, that could then lead people to think, oh, well, it doesn't matter then, does it? Is he? Oh, I can relax. I can just live how I like. I'm a baby Christian. It doesn't matter. And there's a massive excuse there. So what Paul does is he counts. He says, look, um, hold true to what you have attained. What he's saying is, he says, you must be faithful to the extent, however little it might be, that you have already grown in the Lord. Can you see? He's saying that you might not have been saved for long enough to be able to receive some of what I'm saying. And he says, that doesn't matter. What you can't receive, what is over your head is just laid to one side. But he says, don't you dare be lax about what I've said that you can receive. Is he? And he says, so whatever you do understand, whether it's a little or whether it's a lot, however much you understand, you must be faithful to that extent. And the truth is, that if we are faithful to what we do know, then we will grow. But if we're not faithful to what we do know, as I say, whether it's a little or a lot, if we're not faithful to that extent, then we will get absolutely nowhere. Now, it's here that we've got the secret to growth and maturity. Because that's what, you know, Paul says, I want to grow, 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 grow. Now, here, he gives them the key. Here, he's saying, and this is how you can ensure that you do grow. And it's this. It is ongoing obedience to that which God is requiring of you at any one time. I'll say that again. It's ongoing obedience to that which God is requiring of you at any particular time. <clears throat> the question isn't, are you in total obedience to God? That's the kind, I mean, you can hear that wherever you go. Preaching that always comes somehow, ends up with this massive, are you in total obedience to God? Because if you're not, you've got to be tonight. Can you see what I mean? Now, if somebody says to me, Beresford, are you in total obedience to God? My answer must be, I haven't the foggiest idea because I don't have total knowledge of God's will. Can you see? It's not a question of total obedience. The question is, have you done 
the last thing that God told you to do? That's the question. One can't think in terms of total obedience, but one can think in terms of full obedience to what God has shown us so far. Now, can you get the point here? And what Paul is saying, he's saying that if you're obedient to whatever God is saying now, you will grow. But if you're not being obedient to what God or the last thing God has said to you, as it were, then you won't grow. And, I mean, let me throw out the kind of question, you know, just to give you an idea of the kind of stuff that we're talking about here. Because it's very easy to let, you know, teaching from the Bible be very highfalutin. It often boils down to being very, very simple. Have you asked that, that person for their forgiveness yet? And apologised for that sin you committed against them? That's what Paul's in, you know, that, that's the kind, have you done the last thing God told you to say? Um, have you admitted yet that that sin that God convicted you of the other day is a sin and you are guilty of it, and he was right, or are you going around justifying yourself, making excuses? These are the questions, this is where are we being obedient to God? That's how we answer it, we look at things like this. Have we done the last thing that God told us? Because if we haven't, he's not going to tell us anything else except do it. God always goes back to the last point where we went out of his will. Is he? He always goes back to the point where we went out of his will. All right? Now, we often carry on, don't we? And we go to meetings and we go to praise things. We get tongues and prophecies and stuff like that. You see, we're marching on. And God's standing back there saying, Oi! And he'll wait there until we get back to it. Can you see? We cannot dodge the issue of when God has shown us something that we've got to put right. Because God never forgets. Elephants don't, and God doesn't. And that's good theology. Can you see what I mean? We can't fool God. So the question isn't, are you totally committed to God? Are you in total obedience? The question is, have you done the last thing that God told you to do? Uh, for instance, say with giving and sharing. Now then, is it still at the level that it was, say, two years ago when you were a baby Christian and God didn't expect much of you? And now, because you're growing in the Lord, God's saying, right, you know, right, now we go sacrificial. Is he? I.e., are we where God has clearly directed we ought to be? This is the point, in whatever area of life it is. Now, this is a principle that works equally in all Christians whether they're five-month-old baby Christians, all right, or someone who's been following the law for 10, 20, 40, or 60 years, the principle remains exactly the same. Can you see? And it's because there is always more self to deny. There is always more of Jesus to come. There is always more of me to go there is always more of Jesus to live through me. And that's exactly what we're seeing Paul saying here. He says, I haven't attained. God has not finished his work in me. Therefore, I press on. And the key to really going forward is, were we obedient to the last thing that God said to us? Because believe me, <coughs> it's quite possible to have been pressing on, you know, faithfully, maybe for years. And then, 
the Lord puts his finger on something and suddenly we stop. Because it never actually occurred to us God was going to put his finger on that, did it? Do you see what I mean? And we might have been following the Lord for 20, 30, 40 years, mature Christians. Do you remember in the parable of the sower, we uh, sort of looked at it, didn't we, a few weeks ago in a question time. And the whole point about the parable of the sower was that you got the four seeds and they represented four different types of people. Now the first seed represented unbelievers who heard the gospel and ignored it. The other three seeds were all people who got converted. All right? And what did we see? We saw the first seed fell away real quick. All right? The second seed, that grew well. But the trouble is that there were thorns growing up beside it and eventually it got strangled. Now that was a long-term thing. But the third seed went on and on and matured and became fruitful. Now this is why uh, you know, sort of like the reason behind, one of the things that, that often surprises people, and it's when you see someone go back into the world, uh, or you see someone totally out of fellowship with God and disobedient, and you thought, I'd have never have believed it. You know, that they were pressing on so well. Look at them now. Now, why is that? Well, I'll tell you. When you get a situation, and we've seen this, okay, here, uh, sometimes you get someone and suddenly they're running a muck and off they go and they've got sheer venom for everyone and poison. Now it can be one of two things. Often that person was, shall we say, abandoned from the start. They've only just got sussed. Alright? But also, also, we each one of us have the potential to yet become abandoned. Can you see? Because at any moment, because we've got free will, if the Lord puts his finger on something that we will not surrender to him, then we're out of fellowship. And if you persist in that fight, you go bad. Can you see? That's why I say that this principle, if you've been faithful to what God has shown you so far, you'll grow. But if you're not being faithful and refusing to be faithful to what God has shown you so far, you'll get nowhere. It applies to someone whether they were converted last week or whether they were converted in the 1950s. Can you see? Uh, often we've used the picture here, haven't we, um, you know, that think of us as a house. And there's all these rooms in the house. Now, we're born again. We've let Jesus in. He's come through the front door. But there's all those rooms in our house. Now, the Christian life is God systematically knocking on every door. Remember, he can only come in if we open it. We, he can only come in if we open it because we've got free will, you see? So he's coming to this house and boy, it's a wreck, it's a mess, it's a mess. And he wants the house clean, <coughs> he wants to spring clean. So he goes from one room to the other and if you let him in, he spring cleans it, alright? But the point is, it's a lifelong process. We've got almost an infinite number of rooms in our lives, you see? Now some people, and the Lord knows what order he's going to do everything in, alright? Now, some people, they've been a Christian maybe a month and the Lord knocks on a door and they say, no way, and they fall, fall away. Oh, well, if that's what, if that's what falling in the law is about, I'm, no, no, no way. Is he? But other people, the Lord might knock on a particular door in their house after 35 years. And suddenly it's, oh, oh, I never thought that. Is he? I never thought the Lord would ask that of me. Is he? Now, that is why anyone can fall away at any time. I'm not actually trying to give you permission to fall away. I'm just trying to explain the mechanics. 
why it is that even people do fall away who clearly weren't bad uns. Uh, I mean, there was a guy in the Bible called Demas. Now, Demas was on one of Paul's apostolic teams. Demas passed, I mean, it's like when we did the Church Life series, we saw the qualifications of an elder, didn't we? You know, the type of life that they have to be living. Now, Demas was a co-worker with Paul. Now, there's no way that Demas would have been a co-worker with Paul unless his life had really checked out. Here was a man in Demas who proved himself, himself over years and Paul knew that he was fit and mature enough to be in a team with him. And in one of the letters, Paul writes to some Christians and he says, Demas has deserted me and gone back to the world. Is he? Even Demas, a mature believer of many, many years, absolutely sold out to the Lord. And he was. Everything that the Lord had required of him up to a certain point he'd done. But then obviously the Lord required something of him he wasn't prepared to give. And Demas fell away. Can you see? So this is why we've got to make sure that we are living in this ongoing obedience to God. And it shows itself by answering the question, not am I totally obedient, that's silly language to use, alright? You can't be totally obedient unless you totally know what's required of you. And if we totally knew what God required of us, we wouldn't have any more growing to do. The very thing that Paul says we all have more to do, you see. But the question is, have we done the last thing that Paul, uh, sorry, that the Lord actually required of us? There is always more of us to be dealt with. Let's make sure, let's be very, very careful that we don't say no to the Lord. Yeah, we all have a kick and a scream here and there. Of course we do. You know, it might take the Lord, you know, a couple of doors. He might need to thump them harder than the ones he did before. You know, we have our kick and our scream, you know. and You know, like the psalmist said, you know, dragged with bit and bridle. Now, there are two ways to get there. You you know, come quietly. <laughs> you see what I mean? Uh, but sometimes anyone at any time can say no to God. We can cover it. We can cover it with a Christian grin. We can get away with murder. We can do the hypocrite act. Can you see? But we've got to make sure that we are in obedience to the last thing that Jesus told us to do. Now, here Paul's talking about the whole thing about growing in the Lord. And... Well, you've got to realise it takes time. It takes time. It's an ongoing process. One of my favourite sayings is that God is not growing a backyard full of mushrooms. He's growing a forest of oaks. It takes longer. It's quality God's after, not quantity. God doesn't want fast results. He wants quality. But the quality is the life of Jesus himself. There's no quality in us. It takes time. <laughs> to kill people off. <laughs> it takes time to die to self. It's an ongoing process. It takes a little longer than growing a backyard full of mushrooms. And we've got to be patient. We've got to give God that time to deal with us. You know, let's not think we can make it all at once. We can't. After his long life of following the Lord, Paul hadn't made it at all. <coughs> now, just go back to chapter 3. And verse 1, because when we came to this in chronological order a few studies ago, um, I said that we'd be back to it at um, a later study. Um, and we're going to go back to it now precisely because our subject is growth, is growth. And we've seen 
that our growth is going to depend on our obedience to what we know God requires of us. Now, there's another question. How do we know, then, what God requires our obedience in? Because it's one thing to be willing to obey whatever God asks, but it's another thing to ascertain what exactly he's asking. Can you see? And that is why we're going back to verse 1 in chapter 3. Let me just read it. He says, uh, To write the same things to you is not irksome to me and is safe for you. And you remember I said, this is why Paul went on and on and on and on and on. And he's not apologetic for it. You know, for it. He, says, he says, I don't mind doing it. <laughs> he says, I'm happy to go on and on and on and on and on. And it's helpful to you. And of course, he's talking about teaching. Because when Paul wrote to all these churches, he was giving them teaching. Now then, if we're going to grow, if we're going to grow, because you can only grow by being obedient, but you can only be obedient if you know what God wants. And we can only know what God wants when we get to know his word. And that is why we must at this point go back in regards to teaching. That we must, must, must make sure that we are growing in our knowledge of the Word of God. And that means reading it, and it means being taught it. It's a combination of the two. God doesn't <coughs> expect that every individual believer is going to understand for themselves everything they read in the Bible. Now, there's much that every individual believer will understand. God will speak through his word directly to you personally. You don't need me or anyone else for that. <laughs> But God has supplemented that by raising up Bible teaching. And the Bible teacher does the groundwork so that you can get all the information that you just wouldn't have time, you know, to gather in your own time. You know, I mean, you wouldn't have time to go to bed, as it were. And that is why God raises up teaching. And that is why here we not only do the Tuesday nights, we do the tapes, etc., etc. Everything that is needed is there. Just go to John 17 and let's just remind ourselves of the place of this if we are to grow in the Lord. It cannot be emphasised enough. John 17 <coughs> I'm going to read verse 17 and then verse 19. And Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Now, sanctification, that is being set free from the power of sin. That's what we're talking about, growing in the Lord. Getting free of the sinful nature. The, the old us being killed off, dying, sharing the death of Jesus. And the new us, Jesus, coming through us. And here... Jesus himself, when he's praying to his Father, he says, sanctify them in the truth. It is truth that sanctifies us. Now, what do we mean here by truth? Jesus says, thy word is truth. Now, can you see? That is the part that the Bible has to play. Verse 19, he says, for their sake I consecrate myself. That means given to you know, I've given myself to you, I've committed myself to you, that they also may be consecrated in truth. How can you be sold out to the Lord if you don't know what the Lord wants? Can you see? So it's absolutely vital. Go back into verse 14, uh, chapter 14. <coughs> 
chapter 14 and verse 23. John chapter 14, we'll start reading from uh, verse 23. Jesus answered him, If a man loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him and will come to him, and we will make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And here Jesus is tying up, you can't love him without doing his words. But you can't do his words if you don't know what his words are. And then he says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, what's he talking about here? He is not saying, as so many Christians make out, oh, well, you've got the Holy Spirit. Whatever Jesus wants you to know, the Holy Spirit will bring it to remembrance. <coughs> boom, boom. You know, I excuse for a lazy life. Jesus is saying this to 12 men and he's saying the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. What he's talking about is that those 12 men between them were able, along with Paul the Apostle's help, to come up with the New Testament. Everything Jesus taught we have in the New Testament. Can you see? So therefore... Everything we need to know is in this book, New Testament plus Old Testament. And it's only as we really get to know it that we can grow. Just go over into chapter 16. We'll start reading from verse 4. Uh, he says, but I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Talking there about the fact the apostles were able to write all Jesus' teachings down. Go down into verse 12. He says, I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What's Jesus talking about here? He's saying to these guys, you are going to receive the New Testament. Through you together, I'm going to reveal everything that my people are going to need in written form in the New Testament, so it's there in black and white and no arguments about it. Now the point is, we cannot grow unless we are systematically, all the time, getting to understand the Word of God more and more and more. And if you read through Paul, Peter, whatever, you'll find that one of the greatest emphases in the Word of God is the Word of God itself. The Bible is the most self-advertising book that you can ever find. The Word of God constantly exalts everyone to be getting to know it and understand it. And I mean... In the Bible you get the idea that the Word of God is our spiritual food. Our spiritual food. Now we're talking about growth. How are, how are young children going to grow if they don't eat properly? It's not possible. The food that they're eating actually contains the stuff 
that is going to provide what they need in order for them to grow. Can you see? If you don't eat, you don't grow. Now, using that picture, what am I? I'm a cook. I'm a cook. Now, I can devise a menu. I can get all the ingredients together. Uh, I can prepare the meals and I can serve them to you. We can even have question times and go a la carte. Can you see? Now, it's my job to fix the food and to lay it out before everyone. But here's the point. A cook cannot eat the food for you. Can you see what I mean? He can do all the work, prepare a lovely meal. But if you don't eat the meal, if you don't get it inside of you, then one, it's a waste of food, but more importantly, you'll never actually grow. And growth is what Paul has been going on about here in Philippians. We must make sure it's true in physical life and it's true with spiritual life. We have got to get stuck into our grub. We have got to eat regularly and eat wholesomely. And uh, we mustn't pick, <laughs> we mustn't nibble. Um, you know, sadly, the kingdom of God today is full of spiritual anorexics. And it's no good. They are dying. People with anorexia nervosa, many of them eventually die. Why? Because they're so low on food, their body starts eating itself. Is it? Now, that is why many, many Christians, they're all shriveled up. They're so useless spiritually, all over the place, years being a Christian, and yet they don't know what side they're playing for. They don't know which way is up. Can you see? They can hardly walk because they're so malnourished spiritually. Now, we've got to make sure that we really are eating well. Let's just end here with a couple of scriptures about that. Just go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. <coughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and the first two verses... I see what Paul says here. He says, Brethren, I couldn't address you as spiritual men, because Paul really wanted to. He says, But as men of the flesh, as babes in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now, you're not ready. I mean, Paul was coming along with, you know, kind of beef bourguignon. He was coming along with steak. You know, he was coming along with, you know, real, real good Indian meals, you know, down, down the Chapsley. I mean, he was coming down with real good stuff for them spiritually, real food that would have made them grow. And then he turns up and he thinks, crumbs. And so he goes and fills his bottle up and he shoves a bottle in their gob. Do you know what I mean? Because they weren't doing their bit. A child, a baby, has to be weaned off of milk onto food. Do you know why? Because it takes more effort to eat than it does to suck. <laughs> and of course the point is that babies, little children, are very, very lazy. They're very lazy indeed. They've had everything done for them. That's quite right. But part of the growing up process is that you're not going to be spoon-fed anymore. You've got to put a bit of effort into it. F-O-R-T. <laughs> if you've learnt one thing tonight, you've learnt how to spell effort, haven't you? Can you see? And Paul's coming along to the Corinthians and he says, My goodness, you're still on the bottle. He says, I want to give you real food. And the reason is, because all the milk that they started off with, you know, sort of like the easy teacher, you know, the easy stuff, the, well, I mean, we'll just do 20 minutes or something like that. They hadn't let that into them. You see? 
And because they hadn't really digested what little they had, had, therefore they never, ever prepared themselves for getting more. And Paul lamented over them. You've got to eat if you're going to grow. The word of God, the word of God, teaching, teaching, teachings. And just over into Hebrews, and, and this is the scripture that we'll end with tonight. Hebrews chapter 5. And the writer says, he's talking about, you know, Melchizedek, and he says, about this we have much to say which is hard to explain. And there are things in the Bible that, you know, you really have to get your little grey cells around it, you know. But he says, since you have become dull of hearing, dull of hearing, um, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. He's not talking about all being Bible teachers. But the point is, when someone's been following the Lord, you know, for a while, I mean, for heaven's sake, um, it shouldn't be that long before you ought to be ready to have a new convert put under your wing. You show them how to live. That's what discipling is. You show someone how to live by your own example. Can you see? And yet many Christians, they might have been Christians for, oh, 10, 12, 15 years or something. Now, if you said to them, now, got, got you know, old, old George here, he came to the Lord last night, he needs his life sorting out and stuff like that, he needs to learn how to live uh, in the way that Jesus wants him to, all right, take him under your wing, and in six months he'll have been imitating what you're doing and learnt like that. Can you imagine the mess that some <laughs> new converts will get into if they actually had to copy what older believers were doing and the way that they were living? I mean, you know, they probably end up worrying more than they used to before they were Christians. Can you see what I mean? <laughs> and, 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 you know, and here the writer is saying, oh, goodness, he says, look, you got dull of it. You're not working hard enough at it, he says. You ought to be teachers by now. He says, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of God's word. Now, we must always be going back to basics, yeah. But basics was all these guys could, could, could take. That's all they could take, you know. And he says, you need milk, not solid food. Again, he was packing steaks, you know, he was packing the sirloin. And, you know, he came along and they were all sitting there, you know, wanting their bottle. You know, he's saying, for heaven's sake. He says, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a child. Now then, we get converted, we're spiritual bubbies, and, and then, you know, for, you know, for a few years we're children. But my goodness, after a while we ought to be really growing up and become capable in the Lord. Not capable in our own strength, no, no, no. But our own lives ought to be in order by then, sorted out. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. No way are we talking about sinless perfection. You know, but the, you know, the word ought to be really changing us in, in, in such a profound way. And he says, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have had their faculties trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. Practice. Effort. Can you see? Now that is going to be the feature uh, that decides whether or not any individual Christian grows in the Lord. Is there effort into it? Is it really being worked on? Or is it a kind of a half-hearted affair? You know, sort of like, oh, well, yeah, I, I, know, I know God's told me not to do that, but it doesn't matter. You know, turning a blind eye to things in our lives all over the place. You see what I mean? So, therefore, if someone's going to grow, they're going to have their head down and they're going to be going for it. Really going for it. 
looking to the Lord, they're going to be falling on their face all over the place. All of us are going to grow through failure, through getting it wrong, through humiliation, through cocking it up. That's how we grow. But my goodness, we've got to get out there and we've got to be actively doing it. Can you see? You can only steer a moving boat. And the reason that some Christians are all over the place and that God is not able to steer them. If you look at their lives, you don't see God's hand on their lives. You see chaos. It's because they're not moving. And you can't, even God can't steer a boat that isn't moving. Can you see? So what we've seen tonight is growth. Yeah, it takes time. Don't expect deliverance from sin totally overnight. You'll get that when you die or when the rapture happens. But my goodness, that doesn't mean we can have our feet up lackadaisical. We've got to be at it, following the Lord in earnest, straining after it and pressing on for it. That was what Paul was saying about his own life. And although he acknowledged that he was writing to a church where there were younger Christians who couldn't accept <coughs> all he said, he was saying, you will one day, and if you're faithful to what little you do know, of the Lord, then you'll be sure that you'll get there. So no one was let off the hook. From baby Christians to the most mature believer in the church, no one was let off at Philippi. Paul says go for it 100% straining after Jesus and letting him have his way in your life. Right, we will continue next time.